BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. How will the war in Ukraine end? Or at least, how can we get to a stable ceasefire in Ukraine? For comment, we turn to Anatole Levin. He wrote the book, Ukraine and Russia. He's a senior fellow of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His writing has appeared in Jacobin, The Financial Times, The American Prospect, and The Nation. Anatole Levin, welcome back. Hello, thank you so much for asking me. Well, the Soviet invasions of Hungary in 56 and Czechoslovakia in 68 ended with the Russians installing new satellite governments there. That seems to have been something like Putin's plan for Ukraine back in February. But of course, the fierce Ukrainian resistance, which surprised all of us, made that impossible. On the other hand, the announced goal of the Ukrainian foreign minister right now, complete and total victory of Ukraine, seems equally impossible. So how will this war end? Well, how do other wars end in the absence of unconditional surrender? Wars end with negotiated ceasefire agreements. And one answer that a lot of people give is that at this point, it's up to the Ukrainian government to decide when to move toward negotiations. It's their country, so it should be their decision. At least that's what a lot of our friends uh, are arguing. What do you think about leaving it up to the Ukrainians? Well, in the end, of course, the Ukrainian government has to agree to any peace settlement if there isn't any peace settlement. That's obvious. But I think there are a number of things that we really need to keep in mind. The first is that, of course, the defeat of Russia's attempt to capture Kiev and create a new satellite state of Ukraine uh, was defeated by Ukrainian courage and grit. Uh, But it was also defeated by huge amounts of Western weaponry. And it is Western weaponry and financial aid uh, which is keeping the Ukraine Ukrainian resistance going. Without that, the Ukrainians would be defeated. Obviously, that makes us parties to this conflict and therefore gives us a right to a say in its solution. The other point there is that, of course, as a result of the war, but also very much as a result of the sanctions that we have imposed, through the war, we are incurring very, very large risks for the world economy in general for the actual physical survival of tens or even hundreds of millions of people around the world, you know, who are dependent on cheap wheat imports, which of course have been 
greatly interrupted by the war. And of course, this brings with it also the threat of tremendous instability in various parts of the world. If you look at the genesis of the Syrian civil war in 2011, which had so much to do with bread shortages, but also, of course, really severe risks of economic recession in the West. So, I mean, this too gives us not just the right, but also I would say the responsibility to play a role in trying to bring about a peace settlement. Now, the other point to be made there is that it is very evident from the extremely contradictory messages coming out of the Ukrainian government, and indeed everything we know about the whole Ukrainian peace setup, that the Ukrainian political elites are not united, that President Zelensky's previous offers of a peace settlement were bitterly attacked within Ukraine by more extremist not just forces outside his government, you know, the extreme nationalists, the Azov regiment and so forth, but also figures within his government. So you see, by saying that we must leave this up to the Ukrainians, it's not just that it puts a critical aspect of American foreign policy and American interests basically hands this over to the Ukrainian government. It's much worse than that because it actually hands it over to Ukrainian extremists who are in a position to blackmail the Ukrainian government. Now, you know, I don't wish to raise unnecessary hackles on other issues, but I think I think we can say that we've seen this before in the Middle East, right? Yes. You know, yes. where uh, where an extremist minority manages to hijack not just its government policy but American policy as well and actually then goes on to make peace impossible. None of this is to, to say that, you know, we must abandon Ukraine, uh, but we do have a right to, to make concrete proposals. The Ukrainians say they want the return of territories held by Russia since 2014. That is Crimea and those parts of the eastern Donbass. Is that a realistic goal of a, of a peace settlement? Well, here you see is somewhere where the Ukrainian messages have been contradictory because Earlier in, in the Russian invasion, the official proposal from the Ukrainian government, which is it, it's still there on, on the Ukrainian presidential website, proposals of 28th of March, where quite different. It was that Russia must withdraw from all the new territory that it's conquered since the, the beginning of the war on the 24th of February, but that the, the issues of the lands occupied or supported by Russia since 2014, in other words, Crimea and Eastern Donbass should be essentially shelved for future diplomatic negotiation. And that in the meantime, both sides should make a commitment not you know, to take unilateral action, either military or economic, to, to try to force a, a solution of these. That, in my view, was very sensible. It was pointing the way basically to, to what I think was the, the best that you can probably hope for, which is something like the Cyprus situation where, you know, ever since the Turks invaded and set up this separatist Republic of Northern Cyprus in 1974, you've had endless negotiations about reunification of the island. Now, they've never actually led anywhere, um, but equally, there hasn't been a resumption you know, of the war. That was the, the then Ukrainian proposal. Now, since then, from the Ukrainian foreign minister, for example, you've had uh, positions which completely contradict that, which say, no, Ukraine has to reconquer all the land, as you say, which Russia has held since 2014. Now, that means 
basically taking back Crimea and the Russian naval base of Sevastopol. Now, in a conversation with a Ukrainian diplomat at which I was present, it was pointed out that Russia will fight indefinitely to prevent the loss of Crimea, both because of the, the strategic, but also the emotional importance of Sevastopol, but also because, of course, according to the Russians, this is now Russian sovereign territory. And I mean, by most accounts, a large majority of the population of Crimea wants to be part of Russia. So when this Ukrainian diplomat was told that this means, you know, a war lasting 20 years, he, he replied, yes, uh, yes, we will fight for 20 years you know, to, to, to recover this territory. Well, I think the answer to that is fine. If you want to fight for 20 years, by all means, I mean, we can't stop you. Uh, but are we bound to support you for 20 years in order to achieve this goal if we think that the wider risks and damage to the world from this are not actually worth it, A, and B, that maybe it's not a question of fighting for 20 years, maybe it's a question of fighting for 100 years and still not getting it back. Okay, how about the goal of Russian withdrawal from the territory it has occupied since the start of the invasion, Zelensky's March proposal? How can the Russian government be persuaded to, to agree to that? Doesn't this require offering Russia something that Putin can use to claim that a peace settlement represents some kind of success for Russia? Well, that, that's absolutely correct. And I mean, this is a, a point that I think has been very well made by Henry Kissinger, of course, not necessarily all our favorite statesmen, yes. but, but a man of undoubted, you know, intelligence and, and realism, pragmatism. No, I mean, Putin has to be given some kind of success. And I think, I mean, the answer there is, if you go back to the original Russian demands, now, it's quite true, of course, that there were wider Russian goals that they aimed at but didn't achieve. Now, I mean, if they don't get a peace settlement, then there are wider territorial goals. But it's, you know, in diplomatic negotiation, it's not just advisable, it is actually necessary to start with the official positions of the other side. Now, if you go back to the Russian official positions, they were recognition. Uh, of Russian sovereignty, a treaty of neutrality. Now that Zelensky already offered. And, and he's, as he said, President Zelensky said absolutely openly and absolutely correctly, look, I went to NATO before the war and NATO governments. And I said, can you guarantee to me that within five years, you know, we will receive an offer uh, of NATO membership? And they all said, no, 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 sorry, no, can't do that. So he said, look, why not then a treaty of neutrality with suitable guarantees? So, okay, that's the first. On the other issues, leave aside denazification. I think since the Russians captured Mariupol and to a great extent wiped out the Azov regiment, I think the Russians can say that's achieved. Demilitarization, actually you've heard Russians saying, if we have no Western bases in Ukraine and no long range missiles, we can count that as demilitarization. And then that brings us to the territorial issues, which of course are the most difficult ones. Putin wants Ukrainian and Western recognition of Russian sovereignty over Crimea and Ukrainian and Western recognition of the independence of these recently declared separatist republics of, what are they, Donetsk and Luhansk. How is that going to be possible? Well, it seems to me that the, the, the answer here is, as by the way we did in the case of Kosovo, 
And as we have, you know, in effect in other cases as well, I mean, not necessarily very happy ones, but Southern Sudan, Kashmir, even Northern Ireland viewed from a, a certain Irish perspective, certainly, which is to say to move away from strict legalism, whatever legalism is, towards a search for a pragmatic settlement, but which will also save the face of both sides. Now, it seems to me that here is the critical answer, that if we can give Putin a paper victory over territories that, in fact, Russia has held since 2014 and Ukraine is very unlikely to get back, then that, it seems to me, is the only way that we can give Putin enough not to take you know, the large additional territories that Russia has, uh, has conquered. And then you get into the business of, you know, how can we give this cover, you know, both cover to save the, save the face of the West and, and Ukraine, but also some kind of democratic cover and cover under international law. And here, I have to say, my solution is something which, although we've talked about, we talked about it endlessly in the case of Kosovo, strangely enough, Almost nobody in the West ever talks about in the case of Crimea and the Donbass, which is ask the local people, <laughs> ask them, yes, yes. have another referendum, you know, under United Nations supervision and ask them. Now, in Cri Crimea, it's relatively straightforward because Crimea is a unitary area and large majority, it seems, for membership of Russia. Donbass is much more complicated because Russia recognized the independence of the Donbass on the whole territory of the two regions. But contrary to every military expectation, Russia has not even conquered the whole territory of the Donbass. The separatist republics only covered about a third of the territory, partly because Russia did not give, give them full military support. If Russia had given them full military support, in 2014, 2015, they would have taken half Ukraine. They didn't. So, you know, Russia was willing to compromise on that then. Then Russia recognizes their independence on the whole territory of those uh, regions, but hasn't actually managed to conquer them. You know, it, it's now almost conquered the whole of uh, Lugansk, not totally. Um, but still, two, three fifths of, of Donetsk is in Ukrainian hands. So it seems to me, I mean, the only way out of this is, is also to have a a referendum or plebiscite, but on a district by district basis. And then my assumption is that the districts in eastern Donbass, which have after all been heavily bombarded by Ukraine for the past eight years, would vote to stay with Russia. And the areas that Russia has devastated, you know, since February, would mm -hmm. I find it hard to believe, you know, that many people in Severodonetsk or Mariupol are going to vote to go with Russia after what's been done to them. You know, would vote to stay with Ukraine, and then you can basically have a, a pragmatic division of the territory. Now, the other reason why I advocate this is that look, supposing in an ideal world Ukraine could reconquer these territories, what then? I mean, uh, massive repression, you know, the arrest of all the people, presumably, who have sided with Russia uh, in these areas, and possibly ethnic cleansing, which after all is what happened in Kosovo. We gave cover to the ethnic cleansing of the Serbian minority in Kosovo. Now, maybe that was inevitable. The, the point is, you also have to think, how in God's name is Ukraine going to be able to govern these territories, yeah. you know, without... <clears throat> 
the kind of action which will both, you know, frankly, discredit Western support for Ukraine, but also will so utterly infuriate the Russians that it will, you know, basically turn this into a hundred years war. We need a, a, a settlement that will actually end this war. You have argued that the key to Ukraine achieving its goal of integration into Europe is to move towards a, what you call a civic nationalism rather than an ethnic nationalism. Explain that. It's very evident that there are two principal strains of Ukrainian nationalism. And one of them is the strain represented by Zelensky, who, of course, as we all know, is Russian-speaking Jew by origin and very much represents this, this strain or tradition of Ukrainian nationalism. The other, now of course they overlap, it's not clear, these things are never completely clear cut, but it is very evident that the kind of um, nationalism represented, for example, by the Azov Regiment or Svoboda, I, mean, I don't want to get into the question of whether they're neo-Nazis or fascists, but what is absolutely obvious is that they are absolutely down the line ethnic nationalists with a version of Ukrainian nationalism that is you know, mono-ethnic, monocultural, monolinguistic. This is the Ukrainian identity. Other people may be tolerated, but only tolerated. They have no, no recognized role in the Ukrainian state. That, it seems to me, is A, wrong in itself. We shouldn't be supporting this kind of nationalism. But B, B um, it would create tremendous obstacles to something that, that Ukrainians now for the first time have a, a genuine chance of, which is joining the European Union. Because in the words of an EU official to me, the last thing we want in Europe is any more Polands and Hungarys. <laughs> okay. In conclusion here, you are arguing that the war in Ukraine right now has become a struggle over very limited amounts of territory. We've seen many conflicts like this in the last many decades, and they have been open to negotiated ceasefires. And difficult as it seems, that has to be the road for Ukraine now. That, that is my position precisely. I strongly supported Western support for Ukrainian independence against the Russian attempt to capture Kiev and install a new Ukrainian government, as you said, like Czechoslovakia or Hungary. I supported Western sanctions against Russia to that end. But that goal of, of maintaining Ukrainian independence has been achieved. The question now becomes, you know, how much we are prepared to do. And it may, in practice, it isn't uh, about Crimea or Donetsk or Lugansk, because I don't think the Ukrainians will get this back. We are essentially talking about Mariupol and half a dozen other smaller towns. Now, I'm sorry, but then you do get into the, the, the question of just how much we are prepared to sacrifice and just what risks we're prepared to run for the world for control over these small territories, especially if there is any, any chance of a peace agreement which Remember, if Ukraine makes an agreement which in effect gives up Crimea and uh, the eastern Donbass, Ukraine has lost nothing since the beginning of the invasion because Russia held those territories already. So we are making essentially a paper concession in return for um, an end to this conflict. And of course, the final thing to say is I talked about the effect on the world economy. We must also keep in mind, of course, the dreadful effects on Ukraine and the fact that as long as the war goes on, Ukraine cannot join the European Union. 
So there are massive Ukrainian arguments as well in favor of a, a reasonable compromise. Anatole Levin, he wrote about a peace settlement in Ukraine for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Anatole, thanks so much for talking with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.